Uh, you can go ahead and open your Bible to Matthew 5. Matthew 5. And as you do that, I've got a question for the kids. Does anybody know what happens in five days? Does anybody know? Oh, it's Christmas. That's right. Five days. It's Christmas morning. And in just a few short days, joy is going to abound in, in hopefully the homes of these children and uh, in the homes of many in our community. And uh, children are going to wake up early to scope out the presents underneath their tree and uh, see what's, what might be coming out of their stocking. Uh, growing up, my family, we had this tradition where we would, all the kids would put all the presents that we got, we would put them all under the tree on Christmas Eve right before we went to bed, and we'd turn off all the lights, and we'd just look at the tree for a little bit. And, uh, and then that next morning, we'd come out, and my parents would have put their gifts out, and it would be like, our minds would be blown. And uh, there was just this, that, that night, there was just this excitement and anticipation for what was to come on Christmas morning, um, and in just the... The realization that just a few hours, like, the real thing would be happening. And as I think back to that time and those few hours on Christmas morning each year and those hours of anticipation on Christmas Eve, those were some of the most joy-filled moments of my childhood. Those hours represented just this tremendous amount of, of love within our family as we exchanged these gifts with one another. And they also pointed to this hope of exceeded expectations. This was always my hope, that my expectations were going to be exceeded. Uh, there was this potential that, like, after this Christmas morning, my life could be totally different. <laughs> I, it's going to be happier and more complete as a result of whatever I might receive. The only problem with all of my anticipation for those few hours was that I found, and some of you kids might find this this weekend, not to, not to I hope you have a wonderful Christmas morning, but I found, and I'm sure many of your parents found, and other adults here, have found that Christmas morning could never bear the weight of my expectations. Now, don't get me wrong, it was wonderful, and I still treasure those memories. It still is wonderful. I'm still looking forward to five days from now. There was always some measure of disappointment. Now, sometimes disappointment came when I realized that the people around me didn't know me as much as I thought they did. I remember one Christmas morning receiving... I, it, these were in my, um, uh, I'm from the South and I'm a redneck days, and my sister-in-law got me a, a shirt from J. Crew, like a button-down shirt from J. Crew, and I remember opening it and holding it up and just thinking, I'm never going to wear this, ever. <laughs> and she started crying, and I mean, but I'm, I'm not very tactful with those kind of things. I wore it on my face for my reaction to it. Sometimes disappointment came uh, because they didn't know what I wanted, so that was one thing. Other times I would realize that, that the gift I received wasn't actually as cool as what I saw on TV. Kind of disappointing. But mostly I'd become familiar with my gifts, only to eventually grow tired of them altogether. Sometimes that happened uh, December 25th around 3 o'clock. Uh, sometimes that happened maybe later that week. Sometimes it might have happened a few months later, but eventually kind of these things grew faded and I, they just weren't that appealing to me anymore. You see, for all the joy that comes with Christmas morning, there's an inevitable sadness that will at some point follow. Uh, the sadness and disappointment I've described, it's pretty trivial. We can laugh about it. But for some, there's a sadness that's much more significant and serious. For some, perhaps, you are, you're burdened by the absence of a loved one, 
Or maybe, you, uh, maybe you're just aware of how much you're aging and your body is failing. It, year after year goes by and, and you're one year closer to the end of your life on this earth. The harsh and sad reality is this. The worldly hopes of Christmas morning collapse in the face of the consequences of sin and death. And this stinks. This stinks. But, and this is a big but, I have good news this morning. Amen. This afternoon, actually. This morning I would have had it too, but we're, it's this afternoon, so I've got it now. And it's much happier and joy-filled news. The one to whom our celebration of Christmas points, he can endear, indeed bear the weight of our sorrows. More than that, he promises to comfort those who mourn. Eternal joy to those who are his. Now, I did not choose our text this morning. I did not think, hey, it's December 20th, and we normally want to do something that has Christmas in mind, so I thumbed through my Bible. I didn't do that. Uh, we're working our way through the book of Matthew, and this morning, this afternoon, we come to the next verse, Matthew 5, verse 4. So I didn't choose this text. It chose us. And this afternoon, this is, this is the verse we're going to be considering together. Uh, and Jesus' words here in Matthew 5, they, they describe what life looks like in God's kingdom under his rule and reign. So follow along with me. I'm going to begin in verse 1, uh, and we're just going to read to verse 4, and we're going to focus on verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, thank you for the promise that's in your word. Right here in, in this verse, that you bring comfort to those who mourn. And Lord, would you comfort us with your truth this morning? Uh, thank you for, for the joy that awaits us this week, and uh, pray that we would walk in, in the good of, of that joy uh, that, that points to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, last week, Larry introduced us to this text known as the Sermon on the Mount, on the Mount which spans Matthew 5 through 7. And here, Matthew is presenting Jesus' vision of life in his kingdom. Now, Larry discussed how these Beatitudes, which open the Sermon on the Mount, these, these blessings, they articulate what, what the happy life or the good life, the flourishing life looks like. Jesus is telling his hearers and inviting them into a way of living life in this world that will lead to happiness and blessing from now into eternity. And the way these are, these are phrased, these Beatitudes, they're, they're common throughout Scripture. We see them especially in the Psalm. Psalm 1 is opens this way, blesses the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. It's a similar, similar form that Jesus is using here. But the striking thing about this passage is its paradoxical, paradoxical presentation of this ideal life. So you think about what the good life is, and I mean, for me as a kid growing up, I had an image of what the good life would be for me on Christmas morning. But what Jesus communicates to us here is the opposite of what we would expect. Now, we saw this last week. He, his teaching begins with this statement, blessed are the poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is not a position that anyone voluntarily chooses to occupy. It's a recognition of spiritual poverty. 
We have nothing to claim as our own, says the one who is poor in spirit. No way to earn standing before God or eternal life. But Jesus describes this position, this being poor in spirit, as precisely the position of divine happiness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's only from this position, from this vantage point, that one can receive the saving grace and goodness of God for salvation. Now the next verse, verse 4, builds on this foundation. Jesus begins with the same word, blessed, which means this divine and true happiness. This flourishing, blessed are those who mourn. This has been described, this verse has been described by, by one Puritan who lived in the 1600s as one of the strangest paradoxes in the world. One of the strangest paradoxes in the world. Just as being poor in spirit makes the Christian strikingly different from those of the world, so the disposition of mourning marks off the Christian's life. The word used here describes a, a deep and significant and continuous grief. But it's not just grief over pain or loss or death. It's specifically grief over sinfulness. It's grief over the damage that the curse of sin has unleashed on the world. And we see and experience this every moment of every day. So all disorder, all disappointment, all broken promises... They're because of sin. All disagreements and, and fractured relationships are because of sin. Even death ex itself exists because of sin. The curse of sin fills every nook and cranny of our lives. And we can't escape its reach. We can't escape its effects. And this is all great cause for mourning. But while the, the mourning that Jesus speaks of includes the effects of sin, he's ultimately referring not just to sin in general or the sin of others or the effects that it has on the world. He's referring to mourning over your own sinfulness, the Christian's own sinfulness. Several decades ago, Martin Lloyd-Jones described it this way. He said, to mourn is something that follows of necessity from being poor in spirit. It's quite inevitable. As I confront God and His holiness and contemplate the life that I am meant to live, I see myself, my utter helplessness and hopelessness. Mourning is the necessary and appropriate response before a holy and righteous God. When we come before Him and we, we look to Him, we must respond with grief over our sin, grief over our own failure how we fall short of the standards that God sets out for us in His Word. And this is, this is sin. Sin is disobeying or not conforming to God's law in any way. In any way. And we are all sinners. Do you ever want something that someone else has? Do you ever speak an unkind word? Do you complain? Do you ever become bitter towards someone else? Or do you withhold forgiveness? These are just some of the ways that we sin. And when we see our sin, when we see that we have fallen short of the glory of God, our response should be to mourn. Our response should be mourning. It should be grief that we have disobeyed and dishonored the very God who created us. But who really wants to do that? Who wants to be characterized by this brokenness and mourning? Like, it doesn't sound very appealing or attractive. It doesn't sound like the good life. 
Have you noticed how much the world looks down upon mourning, looks down upon grief? Now, you may not have thought about it that much because we're often the same way. We think of those who mourn as the most unfortunate people. We might give them our sympathy and our pity. We might extend some help and comfort. But then we get out of there and we, we thank God that we are not like them. We're just grateful that we have maybe better health or more stable relationships or more financial security or more living loved ones. Even as we see others in sin or we see ourselves in our sin, we, we often just want to move on and be done with it. Can't we just let bygones be bygones? Can't we just forget about it, move on? But this is not what the Christian is called to do. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 7.10. He says that while worldly grief produces death, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Worldly grief is, is marked by mourning over the things of this world. Worldly grief cares about and, and tries to hold on to what this world has to offer. And it mourns over the loss of these things. That's worldly grief. It's not what Jesus is talking about. The concern of godly grief is God himself. Godly grief mourns over the effect that sin has on our relationship with God. I remember when I was in, in high school and my parents found out some ways that I'd been deceiving them. So I was found out in my sin. And I was tore up over it. But the reason I was tore up over it was because of the things that I was not then allowed to do. It had nothing to do with how it affected my relationship with God. That's worldly grief, not godly grief. What we're called to is godly grief. Godly grief mourns over anything that impinges on our fellowship with God. This type of grief is what Jesus has in mind. It's to this kind of mourning that the Christian is called. And this kind of seems miserable if this was the end of my sermon, if we stop here. But it's not the end of my sermon because Jesus has more to say. Thanks be to God that, that the words of Jesus don't end there. He gives us the reason why those who mourn are blessed. Why this is the path to divine happiness. And look what he says. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those who mourn over their sin and the devastating effects of their sin shall be comforted. The blessed promise is this. Comfort has come and is coming. In other words, the, the mourning and the grief, they're not the end. They are not defining of us. They, they don't define who I am, who you are, because they're headed somewhere. They have a destination, and that destination is the comfort that only Christ can bring. Now, we see this idea all over Scripture. So Paul tells us in Romans 3, verses 5, to 3 through 5, chapter 5, verse 3 through 5, to rejoice in our sufferings. Rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. That was Paul in Romans 5. Peter gives us a similar exhortation, 1 Peter 4. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit and glory of God rests upon you. 
We also see the same thing illustrated throughout many stories in the Old Testament. And it's the, the suffering, it's the, the poor in spirit, the mourning who pass through these challenges only to receive the Lord's goodness. So you think of Job and Joseph, or you think of Abraham and Moses. Each of their lives testify to a God who uses weakness for his own glory and his people's good. To mourn as Jesus calls us to, it's not easy. It stretches us, and it, this stretching, it can be painful. It's painful to reflect on how our sin affects those we love. It's difficult to think about how often we fail, how twisted we've been. But if we are to ever know the comfort that Christ brings, then we must be a people who grieve, a people who mourn. And here is the good news. For the one who truly mourns, they shall be comforted. They shall rejoice. They shall flourish. They shall be made divinely happy. For in their hopelessness, in their grief over their sin, the Holy Spirit shows forth Jesus Christ as the one who has paid the debt that we owe because of our sin. He is the one who has died for our sins and who was raised and is even now, right now, our advocate before God. One hymn says it this way, He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming blood, His precious blood, to, His all-redeeming love, His precious blood to plead. In our grief, what happens in our mourning, in our grief, we're, we're drawn out of ourselves to see the goodness and grace of God. For the one against whom we have sinned is the one who forgives sinners. Jesus Christ has made complete provision for all that we need. And from this provision, we receive eternal comfort. From our sorrow comes everlasting joy. He speaks and listening to his voice. New life the dead receive. The mournful broken hearts rejoice. The humble poor believe. Now it's important to note what Jesus does not say here. He does not say... Blessed are those who mourn, for they are comforted. He doesn't say that. He says that they will be comforted. While we taste of his comfort and his goodness now, we will not truly know it in full until his return. What a hope we have. This verse teaches us to, to fix our eyes ahead. We don't grieve as those without hope. We mourn as those with a great hope. John Calvin, he describes how Jesus is telling us that, that the good life, the blessed life, the happy life, it's helped along by grief. Because it's in our, our mourning, these are the words he uses, that we're trained to see the eternal joy. In our mourning, we're trained to see the eternal joy and to seek our abiding comfort in God and no other. Only God can give us comfort. Only God can give us hope in this life. I heard a pastor once recount a question he received after preaching to a group of college students. And, and a student asked him, isn't Christianity just a crutch for people who can't make it on their own? It's just a crutch. And the pastor answered, yes. That was it, yes. Christianity is a crutch for people who can't make it on their own. But what's so bad about a crutch? Have you ever seen someone hobble by on crutches? And thought to yourself, what a shame they have a crutch. 
What a shame. No, you might think it's unfortunate they have a broken foot. But as for the crutch, that's great. That's a blessing. It's something to be grateful for because with the crutch, they can now get around. But we'll sometimes hear people criticize religion in general and Christianity specifically as a crutch. This is, a, this is meant as a, as a negative because it offends our ten, a tendency to trust ourselves, to be confident about what we can do and what we can accomplish. But the Christian religion, religion it, it defies the world's expectations. It's foolishness in the eyes of the world. The Christian does not claim anything as their own, but only looks to Christ. And, and we declare, nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to thy cross I cling. The Christian has a true and serious and unwavering joy. It's not subjective. It's not flippant. It's not fading. This joy is real and everlasting, and it's found by looking to Jesus Christ. Even in our mourning, we are filled with joy. We are filled with, with hope because in Jesus, we see that sin and death, they're not the end. And really, this is what Christmas is all about. This is what it's all meant to point us to. You'll often hear the word Advent spoken around churches during this season. And this is often understood as this anticipation of Christ's birth. The word Advent comes from a Latin word which means coming. But if we stop at Christ's birth, that's just part of the story. The church's celebration of Advent is both a celebration that he once came, it looks back, but it's also a looking forward to the fact that he is coming again. Here we look back to the fact that Jesus came to earth as Messiah and Savior. And we look forward to the day when he will return for his people as king. Hope has come and hope is coming. But this is a celebration that is really only possible for those who mourn. We don't do anyone ever any favors by pretending or acting as if all is as it should be. Christian joy is not a superficial joy. We recognize the reality of sin and the pain of death and the, the grief that we encounter in a world ravaged by the fall. But while we do this, so we, we are those who mourn, but while we do this, we recognize that we have a, a great and unfailing hope in the comfort that Christ brings. Right. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he once wrote, the celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. Brothers and sisters, if we're not a people who mourn, then we've got nothing to look forward to. There is something greater to come, and we get an incredible and vibrant vision of this in the first coming of Jesus Christ. For while we grieve over the devastation of sin and death, he comes and he lays his glory by. He was born that man no more may die. He was born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. While we mourn over a sin-sick world, he comes to make his blessing known far as the curse is found. So as we come to the joy of Christmas morning this week, enter into the joy not as those who do not know the pain of sin, but as those who have received the comfort of Jesus Christ. We don't have to pretend that we can hold on to these fleeting moments or freeze time and just live there. The joys and the thrills and the anticipation and the expectation of Christmas, they're all meant to point us forward to something 
so much greater, something so much better. I want to paraphrase C.S. Lewis. He he talked about how, how the gifts and traditions in which we thought the beauty was located, it's going to betray us if we trust them. The beauty and the joy is not in them. It's come through them. He says this, he says, these things, the beauty and the memories of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. The world we are made for will have no more disappointment. It will have no more sin. It will have no more pain, no more tears, no more separation, no more mourning. This is the world we are made for. And it's all promised in the coming of this baby boy. His coming is meant to to point us to another coming where we will be comforted fully and completely, where our mourning will turn to joy. So until that day, we make this our prayer. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins, release us. Let us find our rest in thee. And Charles Wesley uses, uses the image that uh, Simeon, the prophet Simeon has, as is Israel's comfort. Jesus is Israel's comfort, Israel's strength and consolation. Hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Jesus did not come once and is not coming again for those who have it all put together. He didn't come for those who have no sin who have a perfectly organized life. He came and is coming again for the mourning, for the weak and discouraged, for those who need comfort. And this is the beautiful paradox of God's kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the comfort that you have shown us and the foretaste of the comfort, the, the eternal comfort that we will receive we've seen in Jesus Christ. Thank you that he has come and he is coming again. It's to him we look and Lord give us grace to to walk in the brokenness of our sin and the effects of our sin and let that grief lead us to the cross and the forgiveness we find there. Let that grief lead us to the joy that comes in being found in you. It's in Jesus name we pray. Amen.